And now two readings, the first from Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through 17. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I am now setting up my covenant with you and your descendants, and with every living being with you, the birds, with the large animals, and with all the animals of the earth leaving the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be the symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all the creatures. Floodwaters will never again destroy all the creatures. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. God said to Noah, This is the symbol of the covenant that I have set up between me and all the creatures on earth. And now, a reading from Mark's Gospel, beginning chapter 1, verse 9 through 15. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up, out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the Spirit like a dove coming down on him, and there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. At once the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him after John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Here are the end of the readings. May God grant us wisdom and courage for their interpretation. Thanks be to God. Amen. As Baseball Hall of Famer and master of the weirdest kinds of doublespeak, Yogi Berra might say, It is the first Sunday in Lent, and we're suddenly feeling deja vu all over again. Much about our lineup this year sounds quite familiar if we've been paying attention. No in-person worship? Check. Polar vortex blows across the nation? Check. Jesus walking the lonely valley? Check. The lectionary revisiting Jesus' baptism in Mark for the third time since January? Check, check, and check. Oh, also... The same words, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, from last week's transfiguration text in Mark. Also, a resounding check.
We might be starting to feel like saying, Okay, beloved, we get it. But is there anything else going on here that we are supposed to learn? Hmm. Additionally, look at this Genesis text. This text is located right in the aftermath of the highly problematic story of Noah's Ark. And we don't have time to go backwards from this text into all the theological problems that the story of Noah's Ark created. For example, a God who would destroy the entire population of the earth in order to punish human beings for not offering proper worship and loyalty? Thank goodness we don't have to go back and sort that out. We get to pick up the story in the part where our spiritual ancestors attempted to fix that whole theological mess that they had created by rediscovering a God who is unconditionally committed to never causing harm to creation. This God makes a covenant, a deep abiding promise. That's what we call in Bible language, a covenant. Now, we often see cheerful rainbows painted on the walls of church nurseries, and we imagine a happy, benign, colorful symbol. It's a symbol of diversity and inclusion for the LGBTQ community, and there are other happy ways that we use rainbows. But those who first heard the story of Noah and the ark, well, they would likely have had a much different interpretation when they saw such a symbol. You see, in ancient mythologies, a rainbow represented an instrument used by gods in battle. The bows would be hung. Did you catch that? The bows would be hung. Not necessarily rainbow, even. But the bows would be hung in the sky as symbols of victory. In Babylonian tradition, for example, the god Marduk suspended his bow in the heavens after he had defeated Tiamat, the goddess of the deep waters. The biblical authors were highly shaped and influenced by these widely read stories of their day, and they retained certain aspects of such myths in their own storytelling. And interestingly, here in our text, the Hebrew word for bow means both bow of war and rainbow. But either way, as I described, even the rainbow was also a symbol for a victory in a war to these ancient people. So, what are we to make of it? Well, when we read the story of Jesus' baptism, we rightly hear the part of him receiving God's divine stamp of approval. But if we don't keep reading, we forget about him being driven out into the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. And then those four little words that literally changed history. Did you catch them? What four words am I talking about? After John was arrested. John was not arrested for telling everyone to be nice and get along, nor was Jesus eventually crucified for preaching, hey, everybody, be nice and get along. In fact, quite the opposite. The way Mark tells it, Jesus grabbed the baton that John the Baptist had been carrying until his own arrest, and in revolutionary fashion began to challenge the religious establishment and the Roman government 
right where John left off. That's a much needed, very important perspective. In Mark's story, God meets Jesus near the shores of some water, did you notice? Near the shores of the mysterious Jordan River. In the Genesis story, God meets the people on the shores of the receding floodwaters. Water, as I have tried to convey to you on other occasions, was both mysterious as well as terrifying for most all of the ancient peoples across many generations in the, in the days of the Bible, and various parts of it were written. So for those coming out of the flood in the Genesis story, or for Jesus coming out of the baptismal waters, the biblical narrators want us to see that God met them at this uncertain, even terrifying, in-between place. You might say in this liminal space with some very important promises. Friends, and God meets us in those terrifying, uncertain, in-between places too, again and again. On the edge of turbulent floodwaters of destruction where we have barely survived and where the waves have just barely started to recede, God meets us there. In moments of discernment when we are not sure what is next, but when we are desperately in need of reassurance and we need to hear a friendly voice, God meets us on the banks of our own Jordan rivers, too. Some of you, you know what I'm talking about because you've weathered your share of storms. Like these past days, you've seen the storms where snow piles up. You've worked hard in the middle of adversity to thaw the frozen pipes. You've shoveled snow. You've battled the elements and even your own will in order to keep pressing on in the middle of all these things, plus a pandemic, a polar vortex, and all manner of hell on earth. You've somehow endured this tough stretch, and like many others before you, like the hard times where you had to bury your loved one way before it should have been their time. The truth is, if we've been paying attention at all, we have all weathered various storms and barely escaped disastrous floodwaters. Yet because we are 100% human, we sometimes fail to perceive that God was with it with us, rather, through it all. It sure doesn't feel like God is with us when we're in the floodwaters, but just as soon as circumstances improve and the weather seems to settle down enough to walk out of the boat that we nearly died in, suddenly we can see God again standing there with a bouquet full of promises of unconditional love for all of us. Like our ancestors, we are prone so often to believe God sends the floods when we are hoping our boat is, just stays afloat. But thankfully, also like them, we are also quick to remember that God doesn't do that sort of thing. God doesn't send the floods. Despite our forgetfulness, despite our fickle faith and hearts often immersed in doubt so much of the time, God meets us at the edge of the disastrous floodwaters. God makes no mention, thankfully, of the curse words we shouted back during the storm. God makes no mention of the doubts we still have and the nearly absent faith we meagerly hold on to. 
God meets us, friends, again and again, on the edge of our life's floodwaters, with the promise of God's unfailing, abiding presence, come what may. Understandably, some of us are skeptics about this sort of thing. Already, we're thinking to ourselves, I've never had that kind of a meeting with God. God doesn't work that way, or else at least not for me. Or if we think about the New Testament story we read today, I'm not Jesus, not even close. God never shouted God's approval for me from the heavens like that, like it happened at Jesus' baptism in that story. That's all the same pie-in-the-sky religious stuff those other churches tried to brainwash me into believing when I was younger. Some of us think these kind of thoughts, and that's okay. But because we recognize the doubt and pain in our own hearts and minds, we assume that Jesus was doubt and pain-free in his time, or that somehow God cares less about us than God cares about Jesus But what if we've been looking and listening for God and for God's approval in all the wrong places? What if God has been speaking, but on a different channel than the one we've been watching and listening to? What if God has already been standing on the shores of our floodwaters, on the brink of our disasters with a bouquet full of promises, but we didn't have eyes to see it. What if God has been knee-deep right alongside us in the Jordan rivers of our very lives, offering assurance, claiming us, and has already passed a baton to us, and we've actually been running with it, but we didn't realize these things? Could we possibly have missed these kinds of cues? I submit to you that many, if not most of us, have an incredibly difficult time spotting God because we tend to go looking for a ghostly figure floating on a cloud someplace far away, which we never find. Instead of looking carefully at the people standing right in front of us, when we're at those water's edges, the edge of the river, the edge of the floodwaters, the in-between spaces of our lives, the even terrifying, uncertain times of our lives. God's everyday, are you listening? Ordinary way of expressing a holy covenant of love to us. Are you ready? is through other human beings. God's everyday, ordinary, default mode of operation in naming us, claiming us, offering divine approval, giving us strength during desert-like seasons of our lives where we are tried and tempted. God's everyday, ordinary, yet extraordinary way of passing the baton so we can really run the race. It all happens, normally, through the other people in our life's path. And friends, this does not cheapen the way God works. It actually makes it even more divine. As Teresa of Avila so famously put it, 
Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which God looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which God walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which God blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body, and Christ has no body on earth but yours. Can I ask you a question? Who was the first person waiting for you the last time you were standing in that uncertain space on the water's edge? That person may have looked a lot like your spouse or your parent or your child or your friend or even a kind stranger, but I submit to you that they embody the very presence of God for you. This is how God works, friends. As my colleague Dr. Robin Myers likes to say, God is not a cosmic puppet master off someplace pulling the strings. God is the string that connects us. God comforts us, calls us, and supports us on the way through human beings who are open to acting and responding in love. God is made known by ordinary, everyday people just like you and me. To put it in Star Wars language, like the series Mandalorian puts it, this is the way. The sooner we can recognize that someone else carried God's presence to us, the last time we really needed it, the sooner we can prepare ourselves to be ready for the next time and maybe even to do the same thing for someone else. Once we get past waiting for God to do for us what God wants to do through us, there is so much good we can accomplish. Wherever there are troubled waters and our siblings are getting off the boat after a terribly bumpy ride, wherever there are holy moments and things get quiet for that awkwardly long moment of silence, that's kind of how I imagine Jesus' baptism. Let's be the one to step up and speak a word on God's behalf to our friends, our neighbors, even strangers we see near the water's edge. For if we don't, who will? Somewhere along the way, someone told you that you were worth loving. Somewhere along the way, someone showed you that you were worth loving. Whoever it was, wherever it was, my friends, let me assure you, God met you there. And through those of us who are willing to step to the edge of the waters and those uncertain, in-between, awkward moments of great insecurity for our neighbors, our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our friends, heck, even our foes, God will meet us there as well as we speak the words every single one of us long to hear. You are loved unconditionally, through uncertainty and trauma, you're loved, and you are not alone. Not now, not ever. Friends, we are not plan B in seeing God's covenant through again and again. We're plan A. God meets us there, here, again and again.
Amen.